congregation in response to the sermon, we will sing from number 384, 384, and we will sing all the stanzas. It's a Psalter selection based on Psalm 139, O Lord, my, my inmost heart and thought, thy searching eye doth see, wherever I rest, wherever I go, my ways are known uh, to thee. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text is found in the last two verses of this psalm where David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Children, I'm sure that it's still a favorite game for you to play hide-and-seek. We used to play that when I was a young boy. And we often played it on the farm at night in the dark. And there was advantages, of course, of playing hide-and-seek in the dark because you could hide much more easily from those who were trying to find you. And the one who was searching could have a flashlight and no one else could. But you could hide in a dark corner someplace and you could generally evade any discovery until you decided to come out and show yourself because it was almost impossible to find somebody in the dark. And you can imagine how that game would go, and I'm sure that many of you have played it before. But there is one from whom we can never hide, isn't there? When we think of the Lord, we know that we can never hide from Him. And we can't hide from Him because we know that He is, and it's a big word maybe for you to understand, but that He is omniscient. And when we think of God's omniscience, we think of the fact that He is all-knowing, that He knows all things. And we see that particularly in the first verses of this psalm, verses 1 through 6, where we read that God, no matter where what we think and what we know, He understands us perfectly. It says in verse 2, Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. So he knows all things about us. But not only is he omniscient in knowing all things about us, he is also omnipresent. And again, that's a big word, but it simply means that God is everywhere present. And we know that he's everywhere present as well because this psalm in verse 7 and following tells us that God is everywhere present. Where can I or whither can I go from thy spirit or whither can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wing of the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. That's what we would say when we're playing hide and go seek with hide and seek with our friends. Even the night shall be light about me. And so the Lord, because of his omniscience and his omnipresence, he understands everything perfectly. Well, it's interesting to see then that David, in the last verses of this psalm, that he actually asks the Lord, who he knows to be omnipresent and he knows to be omniscient, to search him. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We'll consider these verses under the theme, the psalmist's prayer to be examined. We'll look at the boldness of his request, the intent of his request, 
And finally, the goal of his request. So notice the boldness of David, for it's David who wrote this psalm. He prays, search me, O God. He prays, try me. And these two lines are actually in parallel. This is a poetic um, method that's used to highlight the, the truth in a, in, a, in a more direct way. He says, search me or try me. He says, know my heart and, and know my thoughts. And the idea is that the psalmist wants God to examine his secret thoughts and his desires. Now, he's not merely asking God then to examine his actions and his words, but what lives in his heart, what motivates him and drives him to do the things that he does. He's asking God to examine his desires. And that requires a certain boldness, doesn't it? Particularly when you think that God is is omniscient, that he knows all things. Now remember, when we think of God and we know him to be omniscient and omnipresent, that David here is not asking God to to discover something new that was unknown to the Lord, for the Lord knew all things about him. But what he's asking the Lord here is to, to search him and to try him and to expose these things to him. So he's asking God to show him. He knows that God understands his thoughts and knows his thoughts. But he wants the Lord to make it plain to him. David wants his heart to be exposed. So he's asking God to show him his desires and the intents of his heart. And and that, of course, requires a great deal of boldness, doesn't it? We don't even ask our close friends or our spouse, or our parents to carefully examine us, do we? Imagine approaching a a close friend, or or your parents, or your your spouse, or or even your children, or your elder when he comes on a home visit, and, and saying to them, could you honestly tell me the areas of my life where I need further sanctification. Will you tell me where you see any pattern of sin in my life? Will you make that known to me? No, it's one thing to ask your parents or your spouse or even your elder because their understanding of you is quite limited. They they only can understand what they see and, and what they hear and they might make certain judgments about what lives in your heart. But the Lord has a perfect understanding of everything, not only that David says and that he does, but everything that he thinks, his thoughts are known to God. And he he knows that God knows his desires and the intents of his heart. And so when David makes this request, he's showing a certain sensitivity to sin itself, isn't he? He's experienced the deception of his heart. He, He knows that there's a possibility that he's living in deception of his own heart and that he's unaware of his of the depths of his sin. You may remember, children, that David, while he was a man after God's own heart, he he still sinned, didn't he? Remember how he committed sin against Bathsheba. He broke the seventh commandment, and and then he broke the sixth commandment by killing her husband, Uriah. And it wasn't until Nathan the prophet came and confronted him of his sin that he was brought to repentance concerning his sin. So David knew that there was this possibility that, that he was living in some sin in some way in which he was unaware of. 
And he didn't trust himself because he knew it was possible that something had escaped his notice. And he shows that he has become a very sensitive, godly individual who wants to know, who wants to know so that he might repent. And so he's very bold, isn't he? But recognize that this sensitivity to sin is because he is a child of God. An unbeliever doesn't have such a concern, do they? Oh, sure, they might put on a certain uh, outward appearance because they want to follow the tradition of the family or because they want to present a certain level of morality so that they would be acceptable to others. But, But they most certainly wouldn't ask God to examine their heart and to expose their heart to them. They might live in a, in a way of common decency for various reasons, but yet remain quite content to let sin reign in their hearts since one who is an unbeliever is under the dominion of sin. And so to sin is quite natural for one who is yet unconverted, living in rebellion against the Lord. But for one who has been changed by the by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, whose heart has been renewed, they will have an increasing sensitivity to sin in their lives. And as they mature, that sensitivity will become even more focused because they want to put off every um, evil in their heart. They want to put off every appearance of sin. They flee from temptation. They never flee to it. They never ask the question, well, Is it okay if I do this or that? They always know that they they want to flee from everything that even has the appearance of sin. And so David knows this and he makes this bold request of God to to see if there's any wicked way yet in him. He repeats it, doesn't he? Search me, try me. He's very earnest to know whether there's any evil in his heart. And as David reflects on the omniscience and the omnipresence of God, It's not just a cold, cerebral doctrine for him, but it has implications for him. He's intensely personal about it. He he knows that God is everywhere, and he says, God has laid hold of me, he says in verse 9 and 10. And he knows that whether in heaven or in hell, there's no escaping from the Lord. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And so David knew that As God would search his heart, he he already knew that the result wasn't going to be very pretty. The Lord was present. He knew when he spoke, perhaps harshly to his children, the Lord was present when maybe when he mocked his wife, or the Lord was saw him when when he clicked on that explicit image on his computer. No, David didn't have a computer, but maybe maybe you did that while the Lord was watching you. The Lord was with him when he secluded himself in in secret to participate perhaps in darkness in some particular sin where he was outside the gaze of his family. The Lord knew about that flash of anger that was in his heart, even though it never expressed itself externally. The Lord was present when he gave a second glance toward Bathsheba. You see, it is the natural desire of a sinner to hide their sin. But when by God's grace they come to repentance, they have a certain 
sensitivity to sin because their delight is in the law of the Lord, the psalmist says in another place, doesn't he? You see, one who's still in their sin will, hide, will, will run from the Lord. They will flee from his presence, or at least they will attempt to do so. You remember how Adam and Eve did that in the beginning when they had eaten of the forbidden fruit, that they fled from the presence of the Lord. And it's the Lord who came down and who pursued them and who sought them. You see, it's natural for a sinner to want to escape an all-seeing, all-knowing God because his mere presence confronts them of the reality of their sin. And because they believe a lie concerning God's character, they, they flee from him. They don't, they don't know of his mercy, of his compassion, of, of his willingness to forgive. And, and so they flee from the presence of God. But David, he flees to the Lord, doesn't he? And you see, well, our natural response in reflecting on the omniscience and the omnipresence of God is, is fear because God is holy. But when David reflects on the fact that God knows all things and sees all things, and the fact that God is everywhere present, there, there is something strangely comforting about it. And if you read through this psalm, you, you realize that by and large, this is a psalm of comfort. And so these last verses are not in contradiction to the rest of the psalm. It is comforting to David because of his faith in the Lord. He was assured of the Lord's care over him, of the Lord's protection of him, of the Lord's mercy towards him, regardless of what may be discovered by that searching probe. And this is true today for everyone who has fled to the Lord Jesus Christ for refuge. We know that the Lord knows our hearts perfectly. That he has an omniscient understanding of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. They are before him, ever present. And yet, through Jesus Christ, he loves us. And he redeems us from our sin. And therefore, we can approach him. When we come to him, you see, as a refugee, we can find refuge in Jesus. In other words, when we come to him, being honest and confessing our sin, acknowledging simply who we are and just laying it all on the table and fleeing to Christ for forgiveness, then we know that He delights to forgive us of our sin. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when we live our lives in holy purity, we do it because we're giving ourselves as an offering to Him, an offering of thanksgiving. Is that your desire is... You start this new year, the first Lord's Day of the new year. And this brings us to our second point, the intent of his request. We've already alluded to it. But he tells us that he wants the Lord to examine him to see if there be any wicked way in him. And we need to ask ourselves whether we have this kind of sensitivity towards sin. We should have the same concern as, as David, wanting God to help us see some particular way in which we have lived, which is offensive to him, which is displeasing to him. And we should be concerned not only on the things on the outside, but the things which are in our heart, because that's where these things flow from. We should desire that every work of darkness be brought to the light, fleeing from every appearance of, of, of evil. And when we request the Lord to search us, it's because we want to know 
whether we are wrong about some particular point of doctrine, whether we have applied the wrong principles to a situation in our lives, whether we have said anything which was sinful, whether we have lived in some way which was offensive to God, then we take care in watching ourselves that we would not live contrary in any way. You see, when we testify that we are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we want to be Christ-like because we are followers of the Holy Jesus who has made a sacrifice for our sins. And many Christians today or those who claim to be Christians, are losing this sensitivity to sin, thinking that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. But actually heretically using God's abounding grace as a reason to continue in sin, rather than to overthrow it in their lives. But this is the perspective you see of the ungodly, not one who desires holiness, but notice that David's request here goes well beyond his life to the things he said or the things that he has done. He requests that God would search his heart and his thoughts. And this goes to the desires and to the intents of his heart. He wants the Lord to expose every evil thought to him. Thoughts of revenge or envy or, or jealousy or hatred. He wants God to expose sinful desires and ambitions. We often refer to this as what is called, and it's a big word, I know, but concupiscence, the concupiscence of man's heart. Arthur Pink has a lovely explanation of it. I think it's helpful. He says, evil concupiscence consists of those secret and internal sins that go before the consent of the will and that are the seeds of all evil. Concupiscence or lusting is the firstborn of indwelling depravity, the first risings and expressions of our corrupt nature. It is a violent propensity and inclination toward what is evil, toward what is contrary to the holy will and command of God. The soul of man is an operative and, and vigorous creature ever putting forth activities suitable to its nature. Before the fall, the soul of man was drawn forth to God as its supreme object in the end of all of its exercise. But when men apostatized and turned from God as his only good or satisfying portion, his soul became enamored with the creature. And thus the soul of fallen man, being destitute of divine grace and spiritual life, craves sinful objects to the slighting of God, and inordinately lust after things which in themselves are harmless but become evil, because he neither receives them as from God, nor uses them for his glory. And so concupiscence then is that disposition of the soul that is often referred to as covetousness. And so we see that this desire of the heart, this instinct to sin is already sin in of itself. And David prays that God would search him by shining the light of his word on his heart. He, we read of that in Psalm 119, don't we? Your word have I, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And this tells us, doesn't it, how important it is that we are men and women and boys and girls of the word of God that we hide the truths of the word of God in our hearts because God uses his word by his spirit to uncover our sin to us so that we would see Jesus. 
This is the reason why as Reformed churches that we have always emphasized the reading, the studying, the meditating, the preaching of the Word of God. Because as we learn the Word, it itself, it divides asunder the thoughts and intents of our hearts, doesn't it? It exposes them to us so that we see who we really are, but we see the Savior, who He really is too, and we long for Him. Maybe we can flesh this out with one example. It may, may not be something that you struggle with, but you can make the same application to any particular area of your life. But imagine, and we all know, that when someone throws a fit of rage, uncontrollable anger, when they start hollering and screaming all sorts of obscenities and, and start to throw things, we, we say, well, that's sinful. That's wrong. But have you ever been convicted of your impatience or your irritability or your annoyances or your frustrations or your aggravations? These seem so small to us, don't they? But in reality, they are, they are sinful. And are they not at the very heart of anger, impatience and irritability and frustrations and annoyances and aggravations? We should have these exposed. We should repent of them and turn from them if we're going to be living pleasing to the Lord. You see, then we're addressing sin at its very core. We're addressing it at the heart level. Because the Lord loves one who loves Him, wants to, us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Because He wants our hearts, doesn't He? He does not looking just for external conformity to the law. Jesus speaks of this in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't He? When He expounds some of the Ten Commandments, He, he shows that the intent behind them is not simply external conformity to the law, but a conformity which flows from the heart which loves the Lord. You see, then when we are wanting to be rid of every evil way, we will seek to uncover these things of the heart. We'll not blame it on our circumstances. As some people do. I didn't sleep well last night. You know, the, the baby kept me up. Uh, the children have the flu. I didn't sleep at all last night. That's why I'm so impatient and irritable today. And we might be tired. That's true. Sometimes it's wearisome. But our hearts are really like a sponge, aren't they? Children, have you, maybe your mom has a sponge at home when she uses it in the kitchen or something. And if you take that sponge and you, you soak it in a pail of, of water, when you squeeze it, water comes out, doesn't it? Well, that's what our hearts are like. Our hearts are like sponges, you see. And when our hearts are squeezed, and they can be squeezed by our weariness, they can be squeezed because we're tired, and as a result, what comes out of it is what lives in our hearts. When they are squeezed, what comes out reveals what really is present there. We might say, well, if only she were not so, or he were not so annoying, I wouldn't have responded that way. One person wisely said, there really is no annoying people, but only annoyed people. And that's not an excuse for people to be difficult to get along with. In fact, interesting, if you search the internet, though, how to, how to deal with annoying people, something I did, the answers that you get are actually how you might cope with them. How you might cope with them. But none of the answers actually address the fact that maybe you're the problem. 
in being annoyed at this individual. And maybe, maybe the Lord has put this person in your life for a very particular purpose to expose something about you, to show to you something about yourself, something which is sinful and something which needs to be repented of. And if you see that, then it's possible even that you thank the Lord for such an individual in your life. And all this is included, and all this is David's intention when he, he says that he might not sin against God to see if there be any wicked way in me. And this brings us to our last point, the goal of his request. Notice how David describes his goal. He says that he desires God to search him, that he might be led in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. He's concerned not only for his present time, but he's concerned for the future as well, that he might be led in the everlasting way. David knows that the way of the ungodly shall perish and the way of the godly shall prosper. Just think of what life would be like if every Christian would have this desire. Imagine what it would be like if every follower of Christ would continually search his heart in the light of God's word. Imagine how easy that would be for the elders. When, you can, when they come to your house, you would, you would identify for them the struggles you have. And this is what we should be doing. The struggles you have in the Christian life, the struggle you have with impatience and irritability and, and anger and judgmentalism and all kinds of sins. And you lay them out for the elders and the elders then have the glorious task to, to, to minister the balm of the gospel to you. What a joy that would be. Imagine what it would be like if every servant of the Lord would ensure that there was no wicked way in him. And every Christian would make a diligent effort by God's grace to cor correct every evil way, avoid every unholy place, and reject every sinful desire of their hearts. Imagine if all believers would live in a way that they only did what was in accordance with the law of God. Well, you say, that's, that's impossible. That's, that we can't be perfect. No one's perfect, you know. The Lord Jesus says at the end of, or not at the end, but in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And sometimes as Christians, we, we settle for less. We settle for less than perfection. But even though we are saved by the blood of Jesus, and we are saved simply by the finished work of the Lord Jesus, when we are saved, then we have this sensitivity to sin because our desire is to be holy before God. And if we would live in this way, imagine how God would be glorified, how our Savior would be magnified, how much attention would be given to the gospel, how the mockers of Christianity, they, their mouths would be stopped, and how attractive the church and this congregation would be to everyone who's living outside because this world is filled with all kinds of hatred and, and horror and terror, and there's no peace in the world. If this would be a place of that kind of peace, then people would come here. They would be glad to hear the gospel. And so let's have this prayer that David has. You see, if we would do so, then more and more we would be used in the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. And it would result in the conviction of sinners and it would display the beauty of Christ. But the opposite is also true, isn't it? 
When Christians live in sin, it is not only offensive to God, and not only does it deny Christ's work for us, but it actually becomes a stumbling block to others, doesn't it? And it gives an, the enemy an occasion to blaspheme our God. And so as we conclude, we realize that in Psalm 139, David has been reflecting on the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. And it has led him to ask God to help him to lead an upright life. He knows the Lord will do so because the Lord knows him so well. In reality, we actually know ourselves so very little. And therefore, we should pray this same prayer, shouldn't we? You know, I'm astonished. I'm almost 60 years old. But I'm astonished at some of the things that I begun, begin to realize about myself as I become older that I was largely ignorant of when I was young. Just in reflecting and considering the Scriptures and the Word of God, and you actually realize how far short you fall more and more. But that's not a reason for despair because our hope is in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that we can pray this prayer boldly because God knows the worst of us, yes. And nevertheless, He redeems us. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He redeems us as He cleanses us in the blood of Christ. And He knows the best about us too. When other people blame us for certain things that are not our fault, then the Lord knows our lives then. In Chilliwack, we're, we're in the middle of a series on, on Job. Never intended it to go so long, but it's now, I don't know, eight or ten sermons and doesn't seem to be ending soon. But we're in the middle of a series on Job. And Job says in Job chapter 23, verse 10, he says, but he knows the way that I take. When he tested me, I shall come forth as gold. That's quite a statement, isn't it? We haven't considered that one yet, but it's Job 23, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. And, and Job is saying there, as he said, he said earlier, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he says, I know that I can stand before God. And he knows that because, of course, he understands that he needed a Redeemer and that the Redeemer is the one who cleanses him from all sin. He, he was the one who offered sacrifices to God. Remember at the beginning of Job, he actually offered sacrifices to God uh, on account of his children, just because maybe they have sinned, he said. He has the same sensitivity to sin as David had, didn't he? And David, too, was comforted by God's omniscience because he knew that the Lord was the one who would keep him despite his sin. He knew that the Lord would be the one who would provide for him. And therefore, he did not fear because he knew his sins were paid for. And he knew that through the shedding of blood, there was the forgiveness of sins. And so in that sense, we can come before the Lord without fear. But if you're an unbeliever or living in rebellion against God, it should fill you with a holy terror. Because this psalm should make you realize that you cannot hide from the Lord. No matter how much effort you put into hiding your sins from others, you can never hide it from the Lord. You may make attempts to hide your sin from your, your, your wife by erasing your history on your browser. You might attempt to, to hide your sin from your family by, by hiding your, your whiskey bottle in the toilet tank. 
You may do all these things and you may be successful in hiding your sin from your family and from your friends and from the church and from the community and from the elders, but you can never hide your sin from the Lord. He knows your thoughts and the intents of your heart from afar off. And then you must realize that unless you are united in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are under judgment for those sins. Those sins are all exposed and you will suffer the judgment of God for all eternity unless you repent and flee to the Savior. And even then, God is not absent from hell. For it is a created place for rebellious sinners where they will experience the eternal wrath of God. Have you been trying to hide from the Lord? Have you been trying to find some place of safety apart from Him? The only way that we can live at peace in the presence of the Lord without fear is behind the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you remember, children, when the angel of death came to Egypt and he was, went from house to house and slew all the firstborns of the Egyptians? Why were the Israelites spared? Were they spared because they were simply Jews? No, because they responded to the promise and they hid behind the blood. They had the blood of the Passover lamb over the, around the door and they were in the homes and the angel of death passed over their homes because they were behind the blood. Now imagine if you just rejected the promise and you continued to play in the street with your Egyptian friends and you were the firstborn of your family. And you said, oh, that religious nonsense. I'm not going to pay attention to those threats and to those warnings. I'm going to continue to play in the street. And your parents are pleading with you to hide behind the blood. But you re resist their admonitions. You reject their admonitions. You think somehow that you shall escape in a way. But there is no other escape. But yet the Lord pursues us, doesn't He? He pursued Adam and Eve in the beginning. And He pursues us too. He pursues us in the Gospel. He pursues us by sending the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth. And He suffered and died in order that sinners may be saved. And so we are to find our refuge in Him. And it's only refugees that will find refuge in Christ. A refugee is someone who's fleeing from danger. A refugee is someone who's fleeing perhaps from, from violence or from oppression. And they're looking for a place of safety. They're looking for a place they might hide from their oppressors. And we need such a place of safety. We need a place of safety and the Lord has provided it for us. And it's behind the blood. It's resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me close this, this afternoon with the last verses again with the psalm, with the hope that this will be a prayer of each of you for these days of the year. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You can pray this confidently when you're resting in Christ. For when... 
this is His work in you, then it's not a condemning work, but instead it's a purifying work that you might be holy as He is holy. Amen. Let us sing together from number 384.